So we pick back up in the book of Judges. This is our eighth week in our series, God, Our Deliverer. We took a little break for Easter, but we are now back. We've got four weeks left in our series. We've seen in the book that the 12 tribes of Israel are in the promised land, but they have failed to drive out the surrounding nations, God's enemies. The tribes of Israel are disunified. They have no central leadership. There are foreign enemies on every side, threatening military attack. And, and the people of God, we can... Look at them as numb nuts, but we would be no different, right? They continue to be attracted and distracted by the false worship, by the worldliness of the culture around them, and they keep getting sucked in. And we've seen it's like the Wild West, right? Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And there's this pattern that we've seen this pattern in the book of Judges. It begins with rebellion. And then after the people fall away from God, there's a period of of judgment, Where God gives them into the hand of a foreign nation, they eventually cry out to God for help. God does deliver them through a flawed human judge. And then there's a time of rest and we think, okay, good, that's all done with. But then the cycle repeats. Again and again, we've seen that these sinful human judges that rise up only provide temporary deliverance. They're not the true heroes of the story. And the book only highlights the reality that we need the Lord. We need the Lord himself to be the true deliverer of his people. The last judge we looked at was a guy by the name of Jephthah. In chapter 12, his reign kind of spirals out of control. It ends up in civil war. The end of chapter 12 briefly overviews three additional judges. This morning we're going to pick up in chapter 13. Go ahead and open up your Bible there to Judges chapter 13. Pull it up on your phone. Grab one from the back table there in the lobby. I'd love for you to follow along. Samson is, is, is a favorite, right? He's a favorite among Sunday school lessons and, and comic books and movies. Why? Because he's the closest thing we have in the Bible to a superhero, okay? As you can see in these different renderings of, of what Samson may have looked like, he's larger than life. He, his story is epic, right? He single-handedly is killing lions and catching jackals and slaying hundreds of soldiers and ripping down city gates and knocking down entire buildings, But of course, he does all of this by the supernatural strength of God. And so in reality, he may not have looked like a He-Man Thor bodybuilder, right? He might have just looked like a regular guy because it wasn't ultimately his muscles that enabled him to do what he did. It was the power of God. So so it's fun to consider maybe what he looked like or how big he was. but, But it was God ultimately that was doing this. Now look, despite the Bible's reputation or our reputation of the bible of, of samson being this hero i want to forewarn you that if you are hoping that samson is going to be the godly deliverer that we've been waiting for for 13 chapters in the book of judges you're going to be severely disappointed once we dig into this story yes samson is filled with supernatural strength from god but he also again and again succumbs to his own natural weaknesses the own sin of his heart one commentator actually said about the account of Samson that, that it is one of the strangest stories in Judges, which if you've been following the series is really saying something, okay, because there's a lot of bizarre stuff in here. Another commentator said this, that Samson is by far the most flawed character in the book, a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. Woo, let's study Samson. So this morning we're going to actually study three chapters, 13, 14, and 15, because it's really all one storyline, but it, it, it may end up being like a salad that I make, which is often too big to eat in one seating. So we're going to do three chapters. We've got a lot to cover. Try to, 
Try to stick with me this morning. We're going to look at the story of Samson this week and next week. It really comes to us in two acts. Act one is Samson's rise to power and his, his victory. Next week, we're going to see act two, which is Samson's fall in chapter 16. But this morning, we're going to look at act one really in three scenes. Chapter 13 is setting expectations. Chapter 14, we see God seeking an opportunity. And chapter 15, we see God slaying the enemy. So we're going to read bits and pieces of all three of these chapters this morning. Chapter 13 opens with the sad and familiar phrase, Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, the problem in Israel is that everybody just does what's right in his own eyes and ignores the Lord and what the Lord sees and what the Lord desires. And so God is going to give them once again into the hands of the Philistines to oppress his people. Now what's interesting about this scenario and this period of history is that the Philistines are not an invading army. Okay, remember, remember the conquest of the promised land had been incomplete. You can see on the map here that the Philistines were part of the people of God that that Israel had not driven out. And so they lived in the cities and the regions sort of within the promised land. That southwest area of the promised land was Philistine territory. And there were cities and people groups intermingled. And, and sadly, in this account, we read nothing of the tribes repenting. They don't cry out to God they just sort of seem to have gotten used to the Philistines living around them and, and having military and economic control over them. And yet, God is still merciful. Even though the people don't really think they need it or want it, even though the people seem to have kind of settled to, to the Philistine rule, at least in that portion of the land, God still raises up a judge to deliver them, to at least partially deliver them. And so in chapter 13, verse 2, we read about this miraculous child that's going to be born, who we'll come to know as Samson. And we see God begin to set expectations for his ministry. We're introduced to this guy named Manoah and his wife. His wife is barren. would have been a source of of deep pain and, and cultural tragedy. And the angel comes to Manoah's wife, the angel of the Lord. We've seen him in Judges, right? He's this supernatural figure this being who appears in human form he represents the lord manifesting the lord's presence speaking in the first person as god sometimes but in human enough form that people don't often recognize who he is and so the angel of the lord says to manoah's wife you're going to have a son now if you're familiar with some parts of the bible we know that god has a habit of miraculously showing up and promising barren women prominent sons and he's going to do that here as well The angel says in verse 5 that Samson is going to be a Nazarite to God. Another way to translate that phrase is he's going to be dedicated to God. If you go back and and read in the book of Numbers in the law of Moses, this Nazarite vow is explained. Here's the deal with this. It's a voluntary vow that a man or a woman in Israel could take to dedicate themselves to God for some kind of special task. Normally it was for a period of time. For Samson, it seems to be his whole life. And there's three main restrictions to the Nazarite vow. First of all, don't eat or drink anything from the grapevine. That, of of course, includes wine, which would have been a part of the culture, a way to celebrate God's bounty. And so not drinking wine removed yourself from the distractions and the pleasures of the world and dedicated it to yourself for God's service. Secondly, you were not allowed to have any contact with the dead, not even your own family members. This was a sign of your separation from sin and death and your commitment to holiness. Thirdly, as, as becomes famous with, with Samson, the third part of the Nazarite vow is you couldn't get a haircut. Nothing on, nothing on your head. Okay? Your hair, your beard, nose hairs, nothing. Right? Let it grow. 
as a sign that you're dedicating yourself fully to God. Because at the end of the Nazarite vow, you'd shave your head and burn it on the altar. To say, God, I'm fully giving myself to you. So Samson is called to this. In fact, he's called to it from birth. So his mom, the angel says, actually needs to begin the Nazarite vow so that Samson in the womb doesn't get any alcohol. The woman runs to tell her husband that all of this has happened. Look at 13 verse 6. It says, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. So she's all excited. She believes that this is going to happen, but she doesn't know exactly who it is that spoke to her. She calls him a man of God. He looked like an angel. Maybe he was a prophet. I don't know. Now, Manoah, her husband, is not satisfied with this. Okay? He's a man after my own heart. Why? Because he wants more details, more information. He wants clear expectations, right? That's how I'm wired. Okay, Ryan Crodel teases me because... You know, multiple times a year, I hand out lists of, of responsibilities and expectations to all the elders and deacons, right? Every volunteer in, in Living Hope Church, all of our staff members have a list of, of expectations and responsibilities, right? Because I want you to know what I think I know that you should be doing. And I want you to know my expectations, and I want expectations for what I'm doing tomorrow, right? That's how I'm wired. Manoah's wired this way. He's like, okay, this is great. We're going to have a son. He's going to have a special mission. I, I need more. Give me more details. And so look at verse 8. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Right? He's like, I got the bare minimum, God. You want me to do this? I I need more detail. You need to clarify expectations. How are we supposed to raise him? What's he going to do? God answers his prayer and the angel returns. Look at verse 12. Manoah then says to the angel who's come back, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So Manoah asks, Okay, when your prediction comes true, I believe it's going to come true, what's going to happen? What's his life going to be like? What's his life's work, his, his mission? Now, the angel's already told his wife what his mission is going to be, right? We read earlier, he's going to deliver, he's going to at least begin to deliver God's people from the Philistines. But again, Manoah is not satisfied with that. He's like, I I need to know the battle plan, Lord. But the angel, did you see this? The angel doesn't answer his question. Manoah's looking for more details about his son, about how to raise him. And Manoah just says, by the way, remember to tell your wife to be careful with all the instructions that I gave to her. He just reminds Manoah that this woman is to be dedicated to God because her son is to be dedicated to God. He's special. He's set apart. So Manoah tries a different approach. He actually invites the, the man of God to stay for dinner. He wants to find out. We say, well, if you won't tell me more about my son, maybe I can find out more about you. So will you stay and eat? He says in verses 17 and 18, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So the angels, like Manoah, you you don't want to know, you can't know my name. It's too wonderful, too incomprehensible for you to even understand. Now remember, Manoah and his wife don't yet realize this is the angel of the Lord. They're still thinking, it's a godly man, maybe it's a prophet. Then at the angel's request, instead of staying and eating dinner, the angel says, no, I'm not going to eat with you, but why don't you make a sacrifice to God? 
So in verse 19, we read that Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now there was no doubt God had appeared to them. God had spoken to them. So, little note in the margin of your Bible. If you see someone vaporize into a flame and disappear up into heaven, you know that that was God talking to you. Okay? No questions asked. What are we to make of all of this, of this first chapter in Samson's story as God is setting expectations? Manoah and his wife are told that God is miraculously giving them a son. He's going to be set apart for God's service. He'll be dedicated to God with this strict Nazarite vow. He's going to deliver God's people from the Philistines. Now, now of course, it'd be easy to get carried away, right? This is the first judge in all the book that had this level of intense dedication called to these strict rules. You know, maybe this is it. We have high hopes. Maybe now God is answering the prayers of his people. But let's remember, this is the book of Judges. Okay, so our expectations are never going to be met. We've learned that even the heroes are riddled with sin. We've seen that even victory is going to involve some level of tragedy. So we might get our hopes up too high, but that's not Manoah's problem. Manoah's problem is not that his expectations are too high. It's that his expectations are not specific enough, right? He's got all these questions for the angel. Who are you? Who's my son? What's he going to do? How should we raise him? What's the exact nature of his mission? God's given him a little bit of the picture, but Manoah wants more. And, and God never really answers his questions, at least not in the way that he wants. Because honestly, I think if, if the angel of the Lord had told Manoah all that he wanted to know, it would have sounded completely bonkers. Right? I mean, what if the angel of the Lord had said, well, if you want to know the details, your son is going to fall in love with a Philistine girl. He's going to kill a lion. He's going to lose a bet over a riddle. He's going to steal 300 wedding suits. He's going to abandon his new wife. He's going to start a crop fire as an act of revenge. He's going to attack the Philistines. He's going to run into hiding. He's going to, he's going to surrender to his own people. Then he's going to break free. Then he's going to kill a thousand Philistines. And then he'll rule as judge for 20 years. What, what do you think Manoah would have done with that? He would have thought, well, now I know this guy's nuts, right? Manoah couldn't have handled the answers if God had given him the answers. What does the Lord give Manoah instead? He doesn't give him details. He doesn't clarify and refine the expectations. What does he give him? He gives Manoah the undeniable manifestation of his presence. Isn't that awesome? See, Manoah ultimately does not need to know all the details of God's plan. He just needs the reassurance that this is in fact God. That this is, in fact, God's plan, whatever it turns out to be. See, Manoah wants more detailed expectations, but he gets something far better. He gets an encounter with God. He gets to meet the living God. This tangible reminder that whatever is about to happen, whatever is about to happen in the life of his son, God is here, God is at work, and God has a plan. Isn't that beautiful? spoke with a, one, a young man recently, young guy full, full of questions, struggling with anxiety, no sense of direction, looking for answers. And he comes to me, and he wants to know what do I do with my life, what, what's the meaning of life, what am I supposed to be? And he's got deeper questions, spiritual questions. Is God real? How do I believe in God? How, what does it mean to even follow God? 
Now look, this, this young man's coming to me for some direction, some answers, some clarification, stuff that I couldn't give him. I couldn't give him answers about what to major in college or, or uh, the, the specific way to live his life. But you know what I could do? I could point him to Christ. So as we talked in my office, I, I said, here's how you can know God. Here, here's what it means to encounter the living God in your life. And I urged him, look to Jesus. Here's how you can know God. Now look, look to Christ. Get grounded in Him. Get your direction set on Him. When you are in pursuit of Him, you know you're going in the right direction. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things and those important details of life that are important. Jesus says, they're the, these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Friends, listen, we don't need more details. And I need to hear that this morning. We don't need more details. What we really need is to know God, to encounter the living God in our lives. The end of chapter 13, Samson is born. It says there in verse 25 that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Spirit of the Lord is on Samson. Turn now to chapter 14, this second scene. Samson is now grown, he's now looking for a wife. But as Samson is looking for a wife, God is seeking an opportunity, an opportunity to overthrow the Philistines. So we read in chapter 14 how Samson goes to a nearby town, the town of Timnah, and while he's there, he falls for a girl. But the problem is, this is a Philistine town, and it's a Philistine girl. And this is not a good idea on many, many levels, okay? First of all, he doesn't know this girl. It's very likely that he's simply driven by lust. She looked good to him. As we'll discover, as we read Samson's life, he's got a weakness for women. He will again and again give in to lust, prostitution, the drawl of sex and romantic love, giving in to the manipulation of, of these women that he loves that end up changing his course and manipulating him. But, but even more important, what he was trying to do was against Mosaic law, against the expectations of Israel to marry outside of Israel, not for ethnic reasons. There were all sorts of ethnicities that had come into Israel, but for religious reasons. The Philistines are referred to in this passage as uncircumcised. What does that mean? They're not following Yahweh's covenant. Israel was to stay faithful to Yahweh, and that meant only marrying within their faith. Now he, he goes home and he tells his mom and dad, look, I found the one, go to, go to the town, arrange the marriage, set it up, because that's how it was done in those days, right? He couldn't just propose. The parents had to arrange it. And the parents are like, wait a minute, what, what? A Philistine girl? You, you fallen in love with a, a Philistine girl? Don't you realize you're supposed to defeat the Philistines, not marry the Philistines? What is it that you're doing, Samson? Can't you find a wife among Israel, they say to him? Samson persists, no, 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 she's the one, I found her, set it up. Now, at this point in the story, Samson just seems like an arrogant, entitled little teenager, right? Literally says in verse 3, she is right in my eyes. Samson's problem is a microcosm of the problem of all of Israel. They only do, they only want what's right in their eyes. But as we've seen, the very problem is it's, it's not right in the Lord's eyes. Now, again, we think... Really, God, this is the one that is dedicated to you? This is the guy that's supposed to be, be the hero of, of Israel and save the people? The fact that Samson is even considering mar- marrying a Philistine, the fact that he can even talk his parents into it, I think just shows you how far gone Israel was at this period of history. 
See, they're not only living under the rule of the Philistines, but they have become content living beside their enemy's presence in neighboring towns. Living not just beside them geographically, but living within their culture. The culture of the Philistines probably didn't even look all that much different from the culture of the Israelites. And we think, how is God ever going to use this guy? What does it say in verse 4? His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. His desire to marry the Philistine, that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. See, Samson's just trying to do whatever he wants. And God is looking for an opportunity. Looking for an opportunity to unfold his plan to overthrow the Philistines. Samson's love struck. That's all he can see and think about. But God's got other things on his heart and his mind. So Samson and his parents, they travel down to Timnah. They arrange the marriage. And along the way, little side story, along the way, the author of Judges says, Samson, Samson gets attacked by a lion. Again, we read that the Spirit of God rushes on Samson. He grabs the lion by hand. He tears the lion apart. Right? Something supernatural is happening. Okay, usually man versus lion, lion wins. Samson overcomes this lion, the first indication of his supernatural strength to save his own life. We then read Samson and his parents go back to their home, and later they come back for the wedding. As Samson is coming back for the second time, I guess technically the third time, to Timnah, he passes by the same place where he killed the lion. And he goes over to look at the carcass. And, and inside the, the lion carcass, he sees that, that bees have made a home and there's now honey. And so, bear with me, he, he scoops some honey out of the lion carcass and he's eating it. He goes to see mom and dad, he gives them some honey, doesn't tell them where he got it. It's a bizarre little story, but hang on to that. They go to Timnah to make their wedding arrangements. And as they're there, a couple things happen. According to the custom... The Philistine town gives Samson 30 young men to accompany him. Okay, kind of like his his groomsmen. Now, for some reason, Samson decides he's going to mess with these 30 guys. And he says, I'm going to give you a riddle. And I'm going to make a bet with you that you can't solve my riddle. Look at what he says in verse 12. Samson said to them, those 30 Philistine companions, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. Now, now what's Samson doing here? Okay, first of all, everybody loves a good riddle. Right? We, we, we love the, 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 the trickery of it, the interesting. We love to try to figure it out. You, you like riddles? I see you smirking. All right, here's one for you. Why did the man bury his flashlight? Anybody? The batteries were dead. Okay, Here, here's one a little more complicated. You, you see a boat filled with people. And on, on the boat, there's not a single person on it. How is that? Anybody? Because the people are all married. No, you didn't like that one? Okay, what has four legs but can't walk? A table. Come on, somebody get one of these. Okay, in what place does Friday come before Thursday? In the dictionary. Thank you, Dave Brady. We got one. 
All right, what is it that you can hold in your right hand but never hold in your left hand? Your left hand. Who said that? Way to go, Isaac Pinckney. <laughs> Look, let's be honest. They're fun, but what, what's kind of the purpose of the riddle? The, the purpose is to try to outsmart somebody, right? Like, I didn't want you guys to figure that out because then I look smart. And no offense, but you don't, right? Like, the purpose of telling a riddle is to mess with somebody, to, to puff yourself up and, and to make them look foolish. Because once you hear the answer, you're like, oh, I should have figured that out. I think, honestly, guys, Samson's just being arrogant. He's just looking for attention. He's just looking to outdupe these, these 30 new, new cousins and brother-in-laws down in Philistine. I have no idea why the bet was for 30 wedding outfits. Maybe Samson is like a closet fashionista. I don't, I don't really know. But the bet is 30 wedding outfits, right? He says, you got seven days. That's how long the wedding feast took. Try to figure out my riddle. So for three days, they stumped. They're stumped. And so on the fourth day, they go to Samson's wife. And they're like, we need you to figure out the answer to the riddle. In fact, these Philistines say, say if you don't figure out the answer to the riddle, we're going to burn down you and your family and your whole house. Okay, these are like some wicked dudes. So his new bride, she's threatened, she's pressured, she goes to Samson. She starts begging him. Look at verse 16. Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me, you don't love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And Samson said to her, Behold, I have not told my father or my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. On the seventh day... He told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So they guess the answer to the riddle. How do they guess the answer to the riddle? By threatening and manipulating his wife. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. It's, it's honey in a lion. Now, Samson's furious, of course, okay, because he's been outduped. He now is the one that looks like a fool. He's got to pay up these 30 wedding outfits, which is no small price. Samson doesn't have it, but he's going he's gonna to pay up. So what does he do? We read in verse 19, he goes to a, another town, and we read, For the third time, he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord rushes on him, and Samson attacks 30 Philistines and literally steals the clothes off their back. And brings him back to pay off of his debt. You say, the Spirit of the Lord filled him to do that? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to try to unpack that a little bit later. Now, again, Samson is enraged by all of this. Go back and read the story if you didn't read it this week. He's enraged. He's so mad. He says, you know what? Forget you. Forget the town. Forget this new wife. He leaves. I don't even think he consummates the marriage. He goes back home with mom and dad. He says, forget it. Now, what is going on here? Right? How could God possibly use this selfish, violent, petty, arrogant hothead? How is Samson going to accomplish anything good for the kingdom of God? Can this really be God's chosen deliverer? I mean, other than kill 30 Philistines and steal their clothes, he hasn't done anything so far to try to overthrow God's enemies. Well, remember what we read in verse 4. Chapter 14, 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. That he, in the sentence, is God. God is seeking an opportunity through all of this mess, through all of the sinful motives and twisted actions of Samson, 
God has a plan. He's using Samson. He's even using Samson's sinful, selfish desires to gain a foothold against the Philistines. And what we see building is this growing tension. What had become sort of status quo, peace, eh, Israel, Philistines, no big deal. They rule over us, eh. Now we see this growing tension, this family feud that is going to erupt into a war and this hatred that God is going to use between Samson and the Philistines. See, the whole mess of chapter 14 is actually setting up the defeat of the Philistines in chapter 15. Now, now some of you are, are dialed in and you're like, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. God's in control. He can do whatever he wants. I've heard that before. But, but this way, God, like this is taking a while, right? I mean, if Samson truly is dedicated to God from the womb, can't can't God just do something a little bit quicker, right? I mean, like, get on with it already, God. Like, this is a lot of rigmarole just to, to overthrow the Philistines. I mean, you think to yourself, wait a minute, he's God. Why does God need to seek an opportunity against the Philistines? Can't he just make his own opportunity? There's got to be a quicker, right? There's got to be a quicker, less complicated way to defeat the Philistines. And furthermore, some of you are asking in your heart, why would a good and holy God Choose to work through a selfish, lustful, violent man like Samson. Why would God do that? Surely there's got to be somebody else in Israel that's good and righteous that could deliver the people. Now look, those are very good questions. Questions that I myself asked this week. But here's the problem with those questions. They're based on false assumptions. The false assumption that, that we know better than God does. The false assumption that quicker is always better. The false assumption that fallen humans shouldn't be used to accomplish God's divine purposes. I mean, just think about it for a minute, guys. How do we, who are limited, who are short-sighted, how do we think that we can dictate how God works? How can we think that we can choose for God how he should accomplish his purposes? Do we really want to restrict God? Do we really want to restrict God to only accomplish his purposes through godly people? I mean, given the track record of humanity, that doesn't leave God a whole lot of people to work with. In his commentary on Judges, Tim Keller says this. The problem with this assumption, the assumptions that we just talked about, is that it put God puts God in a box. It would mean that God is limited by humans and is only allowed to work when people are being good and making godly choices. It would mean that God does not work by grace, taking the initiative to save, but that he works in response to our good works, waiting for people to help him save. Did you get that? We're putting God in a box. We're saying, God, you can't do your gracious, wise purposes on your own. You've got to wait for us to get our act together and start acting good, and then you can use us. Then you can do what you want to do. Friends, listen, God is wise and gracious, and his plans always override our own selfish and sinful intentions. God's hand is always at work through the sinful mess of this world. He is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes in the short term and in the long term. He is graciously working through saints and through sinners. He is wisely unfolding his plan to deliver his people in times of light and in times of darkness. God is always faithfully fulfilling his promises when we are walking in triumph, 
but when we're also stumbling our way through tragedy. Think, think for a minute. Think for a minute about all of the opportunities that God has created for His kingdom. That God has created for His glory. For the furthering of Christ. For the salvation of His people. All the ways that God has worked through messy circumstances, through sinful people. Think, think personally in your own life. Think about how you would finish some of these sentences. I'm not going to finish them. You finish them in your own mind. If, if my corrupt boss had n- never fired me, I would never have... What? what? What is it that God would have never done? If my girlfriend or my boyfriend had never dumped me, I would never have... Right? I mean, some of the men in this room, we can look back and think, praise God that that girl in college dumped me. I would have never found the amazing wife that God gave me, right? How would you finish this sentence or one like it? If my mother hadn't been in the car accident, the doctors never would have... What? What is it that God did in that situation? All right, here's some that are going to ruffle your feathers, but I love you. If Trump hadn't been elected... People would never have, what? What would God not have done? Here's another one. If Biden had never been elected, the church of God would never have, what? We, we may not even know yet. But do you see that in all of these circumstances that some disappoint, some seem good, some are hard, some are bad, some are miserable, God is always working. And look, notice I said, I never would have or God never would have. I didn't say God never could have, right? He could have done any and everything he wanted without some of these circumstances, but but what he could do and what he would do are different, and that's up to him. It's in his hands. God is always working, always seeking opportunities for his purposes, and always gaining a foothold against his ultimate enemy, sin, death, and Satan. And sometimes it just looks a whole lot messier. It takes a whole lot longer than we would like, but that's why he's God and we're not. Amen? What's the moral of the story? Be patient. Trust Him. Be faithful. Be obedient. God is at work. Samson, man, his heart was not in the right place, but God was using it. Look at chapter 15. Look at the final scene where we see God slaying the enemy. So Samson goes back home. He never, he never is with his wife that he, that he married. He's furious. He returns back home. But in chapter 15, Samson cools down. He goes back to Timnah to visit his wife, and he brings a gift. And, and he's planning to make up with her, and he's planning to lay with her. And this is why I think the text doesn't make it explicit, but I think he's going back to consummate the marriage for the first time. And so he knocks on the door of the house, and dad comes out, and his dad says, no, no, you can't come in. I actually thought you hated her. I thought you left for good, so I actually gave her in marriage to your best man. Ooh, that hurts, right? Whether or not Samson had consummated the marriage, that's a low blow. Okay. So Samson is now furious. He plans a revenge plot. He says in verse 3, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He's like, you're going to get it now. Samson goes out. He catches 300 foxes, or some people think it should be translated jackals. He catches these 300 wild animals. He ties them together. He lights their tail on fire, and they run loose in the Philistine crops, and they burn down the food supply of the entire Philistine village. 
When the Philistines find out what happened, they too are furious, right? You see this feud is stirring, but instead of taking it out on Samson, they go find his father-in-law and they said, look what you did, look what you brought on us. And they round up his father-in-law and his wife and their whole family and they burn down the house, threatening or doing what they had threatened to do at the wedding, right? No matter, no matter what we think about Samson, these Philistines are, are even worse. They burn the whole family to death. This further infuriates Samson, right? This injustice of this whole family now being burned to death. And so he plans now to take even more vengeance. Look at verse 7. Samson then says to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Adam. So he tears him limb from limb, and he runs off into hiding to await his next move. What do the Philistines do? Are they going to give up? Of course not. So they then gather an army. They invade the land of Judah looking for Samson. And the leaders of Judah come out and they're like, what are you doing? We didn't do anything to you. They say, just give us Samson, turn over Samson and we'll leave. No harm, no done. And so the leaders of Judah gather an army of 3,000. But rather than join Samson, Rather than take this opportunity to defeat the Philistines, this army of 3,000 goes and they hunt down Samson and they find him hiding in a cave. And they say, hey, we're here to catch you. We want, we want to turn you in. They're, they're going to turn him in to the enemies. Did you see how far gone the nation of Israel is? They have no problem aiding and abetting the enemy. They don't hesitate. Why? Because in their mind, you know what? If turning over Samson... To these uncircumcised Philistines, if that'll help keep the peace, if that'll just keep the status quo, you know what? Let's just do that. They have settled. Settled to living with God's enemies. Now Samson, when the army of Judah shows up for his part, he agrees to surrender. He says, yeah, okay. He says, if you don't kill me yourself, you can turn me over to the enemy. So they tie him up. They take him to the Philistines. And as Samson is being turned over to the Philistines, probably to be executed, for the fourth time, in verse 14, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. And he's, again, filled with supernatural strength. Read what happens in verse 14. When he, Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand and took it, and with it struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. You see what's happening here? He's being turned over. He's bound up. God gives him strength. He breaks free. He grabs a, 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 a jawbone of a donkey, about 16 inches, would have had like a curved hook on the end. Actually would have made a pretty good weapon. And, and he starts fighting back. He, he, he's able to strike down a thousand of these Philistine soldiers. Now, a thousand, that's pretty mon- monumental, right? The, the most I've ever taken on at any one time is four people. It, admittedly, that was wrestling my four kids, but... But Samson, Samson is able to knock down a thousand of these guys. Now we can try to imagine how this feat could have been accomplished. One movie that I saw pictured Samson and pictured the, the, the prisoner exchange happening in like a narrow gorge. 
And that perhaps Samson picked up this jawbone, and because it was so narrow, a thousand of them couldn't rush him at once, but it was only one or two at a time. And he just kept, they kept sending another couple, and he beat them down. We don't know. We can't speculate. But here's what we do know. He only did it because the Spirit of God had filled him. It was supernatural. God is at work. Samson describes in verse 18 what's going on is God granting great salvation. Great deliverance. So there's this brutal battle. Everybody else flees. Samson is left on the battlefield. The workout of his life. He's literally dying of thirst, chapter 15 says. And he cries out to God, I just defeated the Philistines. Please don't let me die of thirst. And God opens up a rock and water rushes out to sustain Samson. What does that remind you of? Israel wandering the wilderness, right? The, the rock being burst open, pouring forth water. God is making it so clear that this man, despite all of his corruption and bad choices, is God's anointed. God is sustaining him and filling him. This is the story of Samson's rise to power. And, and of course, you can see why it fills so many Sunday school lessons and comic books and movies. It's an amazing story. Verse 20 Chapter 15 goes on to say that he judged Israel for 20 years. Military victories, beating back the Philistine enemy. This is just the beginning. This is how he rose to power. He's got 20 years after that. Of course, next week, chapter 16, we're going to read about his downfall. But all those expectations that the angel of the Lord put on his parents, he meets those expectations. Now look, yes, he was full of sin, but he's also full of the Spirit. He was mightily used by God to deliver Israel. Mightily used by God, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that's almost kind of the most troubling part of the story, isn't it? Four times we're told that the Spirit of God stirred him or rushed upon him, empowering him. And sometimes it doesn't seem like he's being empowered for, for all that good purposes, right? There's this strength that comes on him, this violence that comes on him. Sometimes it's to save his own life. Sometimes it's just for petty vengeance. Sometimes it's to defeat the enemy. You say, I thought God's spirit like filled people for good, right? With wisdom, with humility, with patience. Why is Samson getting filled with the spirit for violent rages, right? doesn't make sense. First of all, we have to remember that this takes place during a different period of redemptive history. This is before Christ. Before the spirit of God would permanently indwell believers as he does now. In the old covenant, the spirit of God only came on people temporarily for a specific task. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God coming on people for specific missions and duties. And I think we do have to take into account and remember that this takes place during a particularly violent period in Israel's history, where God was using his people in a physical war with surrounding godless nations. God was using his people in a unique way in redemptive history as his agents of judgment. So praise God that the Spirit does not work in those ways, but it, it was the same Spirit working to accomplish the same purposes. Look, here's the reality. Samson, by no measure, is a model citizen. There is not a mother in this room that's praying for someone like Samson to come marry their daughter. Right? This is not the guy you want your daughter to bring home. And yet, and yet, the book of Judges still leaves us with no doubt that God favor is on Samson, that he is still empowered to deliver the people. But ultimately, Samson leaves us with that same unsettled feeling that's become familiar to us in Judges, 
that feeling of like, is this it, Lord? Are these people really what we need? Are these deliverers ultimately what are going to fulfill your purpose? And again and again, Judges makes it clear that God himself is the only true deliverer of his people because he's the one at work in all of these frail, broken shadows. See, look, Samson is just a corrupt, faint shadow of the true deliverer. The true deliverer that God would one day send. That would one day come for his people. Because generations later, an angel would again show up to a woman with no kids and promise a miraculous birth. And Mary would be obedient like Manoah's wife was and and give birth. And Jesus would grow up and, and he would not take a Nazarite vow to show his dedication to God's mission. Instead, what? Jesus would live a perfect, sinless life to demonstrate his devotion to the Lord and to his mission. Jesus is never going to be attracted to a bride outside of God's kingdom. Rather, Jesus keeps his heart solely focused on the bride of Christ, the one true love of his life. There are no bets, there are no riddles, there are no gambles in Jesus' ministry to puff himself up. Only parables and teachings and promises to bring us to the word of God. Jesus is not the kind of leader that's going to steal wedding clothes to give to sinners. Instead, he's going to take his own righteous clothing and give it to us sinners. That we could be dressed in his good works as the perfect bride of Christ on that beautiful wedding day. Like Samson, the Spirit of God is going to descend on Jesus. We see that happening in his baptism, but it's going to remain on Jesus. The presence of God. He, the Holy Spirit, will reside in Jesus and empower him for all of his works to free his people. And not through personal vendettas, right? Jesus didn't come with feats of strength or violence, but by humbly walking in obedience to God. In obedience to God's eternal plan of redemption. Though like Samson, Jesus will surrender to the leaders of Judah, just like Samson did. And the leaders of Judah would turn him over to foreign enemies. And Jesus would be crucified, would be killed at the hand of foreign enemies. And while that initial betrayal, like it did for Samson, it seemed for Jesus to be the final chapter when the leaders of Judah turned him over, but actually the surrender meant victory. See, and our Savior led us to a bloody victory, led us to deliver us, not by fighting with a donkey's jawbone, but by dying on a Roman cross. And we see all of these echoes and all these hints, all these longings in what God would do one day through the Deliverer, the Anointed One, the One dedicated to God. Amen? Friends, we're going to worship. The team's going to come back up. This plan of salvation that God, the scripture says, put into, into place before the foundation of the world is for you and I. Because we need to be delivered. We need to be rescued from our own corruption, from our own distraction, from the, 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 the looming threat of death, from the fear of death, from the weaknesses of our flesh. The slavery that we live in to sin. We, each of us need to be delivered. Each of us need God to rescue us. And so Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. 
Since therefore the children, that's you and me, since we share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came and took on flesh and blood to be like us, to walk in a sinless life, to overthrow the power of the one It has held us in bondage to the fear of death. Satan himself. Let's stand together as I pray and as we worship. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. We thank you for the the amazing, bizarre, yet inspired life and account of Samson that reminds us of what we truly need. God, help us to not yearn for more expectations about what life will be like, but to yearn for your presence. God, remind us that in the midst of the mess and the sin all around us, that you are at work, you are seeking an opportunity to fulfill your purposes, to redeem your people, to glorify yourself. And God, remind us that you have slain the enemy, that Christ has come, that he's defeated Satan on the cross, he's risen from the dead through the resurrection, and so we can now live in victory. God, all the battles we face, all the hope that we have, all the faith that is in us, our eternal life, our forgiveness is not because of us. It's because of Christ. It's not, it's not I, but it's Christ through me. And so God, we worship you now. Hear this song of praise.